So welcome to our final podcast as we attempt to summarize a 300-plus page crucial book, again, The Vanishing American Adult by Dr. Senator Ben Sass, an Ivy League historian and fantastically adroit contributor uh, to all of us here in the United States. So we're down to the last of the suggestions. The last three actually going to fit into one podcast here uh, for a number of reasons. But here's the, the, the next suggestion. Consume less from Sass. The fear that our kids are getting soft, the haunting, aching suspicion that surplus creature comforts make civilizations fat and unambitious is not new to with us. Of course, parents and grandparents have worried about the virtue, literally the strength of rising generations in all times free of famine and since and war since the creation. The Spartans built an entire culture based on ensuring that their citizenry, especially the young who would defend them in battle, would be physically and mentally tougher than their neighbors who were raised with greater material supports. But it is new for children to be tempted towards the soulless idea of limitless acquisition by the popular culture from before they're able to even form even their first sentence. If we're going to protect our kids from affluenza, from the historically bizarre inclination to view consumption as somehow their main occupation or, quote, work, we're going to need to gently introduce them to the older notion that limits are real and often good. Now, this smacks against, this is, Uh, My commentary is smacks against the idol of our culture, which is expressive individualism. Things won't make you happy, back to Sass. Everyone should read uh, Arthur Brooks of the American Enterprise Institute directly, but here's the Cliff Notes version of his book. It turns out that nearly half of our happiness is genetic. Another significant portion comes from having the good fortune to be born away from a definable universe of horrific events, war, famine, and epidemic. Much is thus predetermined, but a portion of the happiness somewhat within our control, there are four key drivers to what Brooks calls our happiness portfolio. Somewhat surprisingly, none of the four are related to material abundance. These are the central variables that emerge from Brooks' research. One, faith. Do you have a framework to make sense of death and suffering, or to think about and integrate the eternities into your life? Second, family. Do you have a home life with mutual affection, where the good of others is as important to you as your own happiness? Three, community. Do you have at least two real friends who feel pain when you suffer and share joy when you thrive? And four, work. Perhaps most fundamentally, when you leave home on Monday morning, do you believe that there are other people who genuinely benefit from the work you do? Is your calling meaningful is another way of stating this. Not, according to Brooks, is it fun or well compensated, but rather does it matter in the long run? The political scientist, Harvard scientist, Charles Murray has studied, quote, the kinds of accomplishments that lead people to reach old age satisfied with who they have been and what they have done. Murray writes, you find that the accomplishments you have in mind have three things in common. First, according to Charles Murray, the source of satisfaction involves something important. You can see this, this simpatico with Brooks's work. Second, the source of satisfaction has involved effort, probably over an extended period of time. You need to have invested your energy, worry, and time in it. And then third, some level of personal responsibility for the outcome is essential. What sorts of accomplishments meet all three criteria? Like Brooks, Murray argues that people achieve the most happiness through their family, vocation, community, and faith. So you have these two men converging on these same issues. And again, just a side note for me, when you read the books, I've probably read a dozen books on happiness and the pursuit thereof, you get sometimes in the secular world this surprising result of all these studies 
and and over the long periods of time that don't match some of the uh, some of the ways we're presented. You can acquire happiness through other pursuits. Back to Sass, what is glaringly absent from either scholar's research? Any hint that higher earnings or more material goods translate into joy or fulfillment. Hence, unsurprisingly, data also suggests that the least happy people are lottery winners and folks with inherited money but no meaningful jobs. Does anyone think our culture is doing a good job of teaching those now coming of age or modeling for them the basic truths that television and movies are mostly misleading? We do it in our family. It's called spot the lie. And that, the re- and that real world consumption is insufficient to make you happy or have what we call deep satisfaction. He has this long outstanding summary and, and run of subsistence farming all the way up to our current information age. Wonderful in the book when you get to this chapter, this chapter six. So he concludes this way. If we let our children remain so historically ignorant as to believe that the upgrade from the iPhone 5 to the iPhone 6 is the great divide in human happiness, they're probably going to have a tough time navigating the coming years. He then uh, offers a careful use of the Stoic Epictetus. Epictetus, an emancipated slave, wrote his famous Enchiridion. This is a Latin word that just means handbook. Listen to what Epictetus says. Some things are under our control while others are not under our control. Under our control, according to Epictetus, conception, uh, conception, choice, desire, aversion, and everything else that's our own doing. Not under our control, the inevitable decline of our bodies, most of what happens to our property, reputation, office, and everything that is not our own doing. If your life is focused on acquiring things, quote, you will be hampered, will grieve, will be in turmoil, will blame both gods and men. Unquote. If you desire things beyond your control, quote, you are bound to be unfortunate and disappointed. Here's the important thing. Epictetus is saying that our desires can be brought within our control. To achieve that would require a complete reordering of most of our lives to reshape our affections. Conversely, and again contrary to how we usually think, he teaches that a focus on acquiring things will not really ever yield enough products to produce happiness. Now, again, I'm going to add a note here. I know I'm doing this a little more in this in this final concluding podcast, but Christians aren't called to Stoicism. And we're not called to uh, a belief that everything is going to be up all the time simply because we're children of the king. We're called to a middle way through derived help from the Holy Spirit. The only way you can reorder your loves and, and flee idolatry of even good things, blessed things from God, believing they're owed to us and will automatically uh, come to us because of our devotion to God, is through the power of the Holy Spirit and humbling yourself and being obedient. Again, a spirit-empowered knowledge and then a spirit-empowered in action brings a balance between this idea of stoicism, nothing can affect me, or this idea of unfettered grief or joy based on an expectation you'll always have all joy or it'll always be uh, grief will consume me or just being led around by your emotions. Summary, at one level, happiness is an equation that has needs met as the numerator and presumed total needs as the denominator. One way to achieve temporary happiness is to invest more energy in seeking to fill up the numerator. Put another way, a more stable way, is to reflectively guard against the growth of one's denominator of needs and to cultivate the habit of gratitude and satisfaction of the real and basic needs that are met. Chapter 7 is by far Sass's weakest chapter. It's the least data-driven. It's more anecdotal than any other chapter, and it's called Travel to Sea travel to see. And from a, again, a commentary here from a person that's traveled most of the world as a job of mine for a decade and seeing the sites to be seen and having to memorize some of those sites to present them uh, to groups and travel. 
again, this is a, we only need a very short time here to dwell. There is something that comes by contrasting our culture away from the uh, other cultures and, and contrast clarifies. But listen, he quotes Homer, a man who has been through bitter experiences and traveled far enjoys even, even his sufferings after a time. This is from Homer. Again, this is the least evidence and least powerful of all Sass's suggestions of his five, largely anecdotal. Also, it's most difficult to implement uh, with your, you know, with with your own. I, you know, how do you get your kids to do this? We've thought about doing this through missions. My mom suggested this as well. Uh, again, contrast and comparison is always important to produce true gratitude. Uh, feeling the palpable cause and effect results of something, for example, being out and out of cash and no place to sleep, like my brother Drew did when he traveled uh, bare bones and went to hostels, very, very important. You can see the difference between uh, third world, 2.5 world, second world, and first world. Very, very educational. Travels and education in that sense, but it's not the deliverer of everything. Uh, he says we should travel versus tourism. We shouldn't just have manicured travel experiences. He says on a beach in Cancun or in a bus taking pictures of a statue. Um, and he says these sort of questions come up when you when you travel and, and rough it. Do I really need so much stuff when I seem to be freer when I'm away from it? That's a wonderful emancipation that comes through travel and doing the bare bones travel he's suggesting. From their experiences and from my own and from those others that have been recorded, I began to notice some overarching themes like conquering your fear of being alone, seeing beyond instinctive prejudice, looking more deeply, eliminating low priorities, uh, doubting social convention, learning to sleep anywhere, and so on and so on. These are the sort of questions with which one wrestles when they're traveling. So again, it's it's, it's a good suggestion. It's just one of the least evidenced chapters out here on Sass, and I think it, it pales in comparison to the other suggestions, the other five he makes. Last in chapter eight is build a bookshelf. And to just put it bluntly, you can't, underestimate the benefits accrued to readers. Readers are leaders. Uh, we are worse as a culture from moving from a print-based, word-based medium to an image-based, moving image-based medium. Uh, we're just worse off. We can't think as well. We have a shorter attention span. Uh, we can't wrestle with things as well. So he says, build a bookshelf. What does that mean? Have a bookshelf dedicated to the greatest literary works your kids, everything that's affected them uh, most strongly. Obviously, the Bible will be the first book on that shelf, but create readers. And with that, uh, that brings us to the end of uh, his book. He actually has this long uh, speech from Teddy Roosevelt at the end that we could all learn from, uh, from which we could learn. But uh, just to, as far as a bottom line summary, let me give you uh, the five again and some, some commentaries we finish up here. So <clears throat> suggestion number one, uh, put the fleeting nature of life front and center for your kids. Have them dwell on the eternities. We have uh, uh, my pastor, my current pastor, suggesting we do this all the time. Uh, the great A.W. Tozer suggested this as well. Uh, he s gives specific suggestions here, overcoming pure culture and what Charles Taylor calls, he doesn't quote Charles Taylor, but the imminent frame or to, to remove your kids from the idolatry being stuck in the present. Have them look back and look forward. Uh, birth, uh, death, what comes after them, what came before them, that sort of thing. 
uh, you have a, some psalms come to mind as the human life being like a vapor, but being uh, valuable nonetheless to God. He tells us to, you know, uh, Sass suggests flee age segregation as best you can. P- make that a priority. Um, teach biblical realism about ourselves. Um, we, we have a falling, a falling glory, but we need supernatural help to understand that and implement that. Um, I think of 2 Corinthians 4 and Hebrews 11, what is unseen is, is far more crucial than the scene there. Uh, second suggestion, embrace work pain. Do hard things. Put hard, meaningful things in front of your children. A work ethic is not an inevitable. Uh, I think of, of all the Proverbs about railing against the lazy, the sluggard. Number three, consume less and produce more. Meaningful contribution is what brings meaningful satisfaction. I think of Second Corinthians, even Second Corinthians one, astounding letter from Paul to the uh, the early Christians in Corinth. God gives us even comfort to eventually give away to others in need. Uh, four, travel. Remember, we just did this. Travel for nothing more than by contrast, we can clarify and appreciate the particulars of American exceptionalism, and and, and wrestle with certain questions that help us grow. And then five, make readers of them. Make readers of them. Make readers of your kids. The benefits are simply too numerous to list here. So with that, we're going to shut this down. Uh, Hopefully that's just a little over an hour. You get the entire SAS book, and hopefully this can be a great aid, as it has been for our family. Um, And even if you fail in implementation and fail in practice, it's worth attempting to do this as a, uh, I think, a biblically-oriented supplement Uh, to uh, what you're already doing as a parent and things you can integrate into your family life for the sake of your kids and for the sake of all of us in these coming generations.